Let's, uh, let's pray. I want to pray tonight before we jump in. Father, we, we're talking about a real powerful subject tonight as we begin our study of Nahum. And I pray that you'd give me clarity and balance in teaching what your word says in the book of Nahum. And I pray that you'd help us understand that sometimes you have to be a judge. And we thank you that you'll help us do this through the words you inspired Nahum to write. In Jesus' name, amen. When I say the word judge, I don't think I'm taking too much liberty when I say negative things come to mind, right? If I say the word judge, positive things are not flowing in your mind with just the thought of that word. Judge. Some of you think, yeah, when I got that ticket for going 88 and a 55, I had to stand before a judge. And when he proved me wrong, I faced his judgment. It's not fun. Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. I don't want to tell me. How many times do people uh, who aren't inside the church, you talk to them and they say, don't judge me, man. Well, now they say man, but they've always said, don't judge me. It sounds so harsh. It sounds so final. It sounds so negative. It sounds like nothing uh, meritorious or beneficial or good or helpful could ever flow out of judgment. But what about when God is the judge? When God is the judge, is that a different situation? That's what we're going to look at as we study this short series, just two weeks on this three-chapter little book tucked away in the Old Testament called Nahum. Now, I know I've been teasing Nahum since the summer and the fall, but, but be honest with you, don't, don't show your hands, but inside, how many of you ever realized there was something called a Nahum in the Bible? Or, or how many think that a Nahum is something around your midsection? Yeah, there's, there's, there's my Nahum right there. You know, that's your navel. But, but people probably think it's a plague or a body organ rather than a book of the Bible. And it's in the minor prophets. In the Old Testament, we have 39 books. And the last 17 books are the prophets. The first five of this collection of 17 are called the major prophets, literally because of the length and the scope of their ministry are major in comparison to the final 12 books of the Old Testament, which are called the Minor Prophets. And that's because their length and the scope of their ministry is shorter or narrower. Nahum is one of the Minor Prophets. And so we're going to look at that today. So, to pull out your Lakeshore notes, and let's talk about After Jonah, part two of the story of God and Nineveh. To understand the book of Jonah fully, or excuse me, the book of Nahum fully, you really have to understand its relationship to Jonah. And we're going to see how Nahum is a follow-up to Jonah. But let's, let's look at some of the key questions you always want to look at before you jump into any study of a book. You always want to answer these key questions. So here's the first. The first question is, who's the author? And the author is Nahum. Nahum. Look at verse 1. In the book it says an oracle an oracle that word can be translated burden an oracle or a burden concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum 
the Elkoshite. That, that's where he was from. It says the oracle or burden concerning Nineveh. That's the object that is being judged or described as the recipients of judgment. And then it says the book of the vision of Nahum. It's not that Nahum came up with this all by himself. It has the idea that it was a vision given to him from God. That's obvious from the Hebrew word for vision. It's also obvious from the context. This is the Lord speaking. So don't get the idea that this is a vision of Nahum, that he conjured this up all on his own. No, this is a divine revelation vision that God gave Nahum. He saw, what is a vision? We don't fully know, because unless you've been given a vision, you probably don't know. But the general consensus is that when God gives a prophet or a human being a vision, a, a divine revelation vision, they see it in their mind mentally, and somehow they see it spiritually. That's the best we can deduce. But he has a vision of what God is going to do to Nineveh, to Nineveh, which we know is the capital city of Assyria from last time. And it was burdening. It was a burden to Nahum. It was heavy. He had to do something with it. He had to get rid of it. And he gets rid of it by expressing it through his writings in the letter. By the way, it's interesting that Nahum talks a lot about judgment. What does Nahum's name mean? Comfort. Well, you picked a strange name for a prophet. Hey, comfort, would you talk about judgment? But here's what we're going to learn tonight and then next time. Judgment, for one, oftentimes brings comfort for another. Very important idea. It's one of the prominent ideas of Nahum. So Nahum can talk about judgment because it's going to bring comfort. More on that later. Now, when was it written? And... and I can give you the dates and you go, ho-hum. The dates are between 663 and 612 B.C. You go, ho-hum. You could have told me 800 to 700 and it wouldn't have mattered. I understand that. But let me help you understand why these dates are critical because they're sandwiched around some important events. We know that it was written sometime between 663 and 612 because in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8, we read about the fall of this city or this region called Thebes. And history tells us that happened 663. So we know that already happened, so we know it had to have been after 663. And then we know that what the book describes is the fall of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and we know historically that happened 612 BC. We know that. So it was sometime between 663 and 612 BC, and it was probably closer to 612 BC because the way Nahum describes the judgment that's going to come upon Nineveh he describes it like it's really, really close. So it's probably closer to the 612 B.C. than it is the 663 B.C. Israel was a divided nation. Um, you remember Israel's first king was Saul. Israel's second king was David. Israel's third king was Solomon. After Solomon died, what happened? About 900 B.C., the nation of Israel divided. There was a northern tribe a northern, northern group, 10 of the 12 tribes, a southern group, two of the 12 tribes. The northern group was called uh, sometimes Ephraim or, or Samaria and, or Israel, 
and it was headquartered in Samaria. The two southern tribes are called Judah, and that was headquartered in Jerusalem. It was divided. Now, by this time, the Assyrians, again, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, the Assyrians had already taken out the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C. and 721. There was an attack in 722, and then 721 B.C. it finished it. So at this time, the ten northern tribes had already been wiped out by Assyria. Judah's still ticking, Judah's still alive, but they're an ominous big threat to the remaining two tribes in southern, the southern two tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And so they're threatened by Assyria. And it's looking like big-time problems. And if you understand that, you get a feel for the third point, which is the background. And that's this. The once-repentant, now-unrepentant Ninevites are being judged. About 150 years earlier, Jonah came in, right? Jonah was told by God, go to Nineveh, that great city, preach against it. Jonah said no. He got on a boat headed for southern Spain. Uh, the boat hit a storm, he was thrown in the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, swallowed by a great fish, chapter 2, he praises God, thanks him, repents, gets out, chapter 3, he preaches to Nineveh, and then the thing he couldn't believe could happen did, they actually did repent. 150 years, approximately, give or take 10, 20, 30 years, because we don't know the exact time of Nahum, or the exact time of when Jonah preached in Nineveh. But since then, they reverted back to their old ways. They, they, they were evil, they were wicked, they were brutal. The way they treated their enemies was so intentionally malicious, bitter, and brutal, their intent was to send a message to any other nation that would dare stand up to them. And we'll talk more about their brutality next time. We talked a little bit about it in the previous series. But it was at its peak under uh, Asher Banipal, 669 to 627 B.C., and after he died it began to decline. Assyria was in decline. God was setting up Assyria for decline in 627 B.C. until 15 years later, 612 B.C., they were totally judged by God. And sometime before its fall, Nahum predicted, sometime before 612 B.C., that it would fall. So that's the background. And then the key themes that surface in the book, there are, there are two that I, I see anyway. Number one, God's response to evil and unrepentant people. Do you ever see people that, that just defy God and, and then they sin and then they thumb their nose at God and then they take God's name in vain and you go, well, God, why don't you strike them dead like instantly? Because God has a different timetable. But don't confuse God's slow timetable, and we're going to see some of the balance here of why God is slower than we might think. Don't confuse slowness with slothness. God will bring judgment. And at some point, Nineveh's lack of maintaining their repentance under Jonah's preaching was going to be judged because they were continuously evil. They were just as bad, maybe worse. He saw their reversion, and in time he judged it. So we're going to see how God responds to evil and unrepentant people over time. And then second, we're going to see God's character as judge. In fact, we're going to see that tonight. We're going to see that, that God is judge, and, and, and God is more than judging he is a judge. God, God is not loving alone. God is love. John, 1 John 4 tells us that. God is not just a judging God. God is judge. He, he, he's 
he's like a verb. He, he, he's a judge, and he, and he is judge. He is, he is judgment. So, so it's not just something he does, it's something he is. And I think that's what you're going to see. Now, on the back of your notes, you'll see I have a book chart. The, the book is short. I didn't want to give you a complicated book chart. But let's just look at the book chart briefly. I've called the book Nahum, When God Becomes Judge. In chapter 1, we see the judge. This is who God is. This is God's right to judge. In chapter 2 to 3, we see the judgment. This is what God does. And this is where Nineveh's fall in judgment is explained. So chapter 1, the judge. Chapter 2 to 3, the judgment. In chapter 1 tonight, we're going to see how it was through an oracle to Nahum and how it was based on God's character and according to his commands. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see in chapter 2 the description of Nineveh's fall. How did it fall? And then in chapter 3, God's going to come back and say, here are the reasons, Nineveh, why you fell. Here's the reasons. Because of your violence and deceit, because of your treatment of Thebes, and because of your self-reliance. Again, the key people, Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, the key issues, we explain that, author Nahum, and then some of the date. So that's a little bit on the book chart. So tonight I want to talk specifically about why God sometimes has to be a judge. God is not always a judge, but you'd be foolish to say God is never a judge. Sometimes God has to be a judge. Why, why is that? The first reason why God sometimes has to be a judge is because judgment is par part of God's character. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. So let's jump right in. You'll see this. Verse 2. We already covered verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, meaning comfort, the Elkishite. Verse 2. The Lord is, not the Lord demonstrates, but the Lord is. Now listen to this string. I count six strong words. He is a jealous and avenging God. Now, those don't sound good. Like, like you say, boy, you're jealous. Usually that's a negative thing, but jealous can be a good thing. And this is certainly a good thing. He's a jealous and an avenging God. He bring, brings revenge. The Lord takes vengeance. There's a second time that word occurs, and is filled with wrath. The Lord is filled with wrath. He's filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance, the third time vengeance or avenging occurs, on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. That's very strong language. He's that. Five different ways. It's describing who God is. Before God exhibits judgment, he's going to tell you he is the judge and he is judgment. Now that's a really, really strong list. And it's almost like right out of the chute, he hits us with bang, 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 these these uh, five, actually six different strong statements. But then he gives you a little breather. Verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. So he qualifies it a little bit. Yes, the Lord is, the text says, he's filled with wrath. But he doesn't always wrath. He's filled with wrath, but he is slow to anger. Just because he's full of wrath, he has the capacity to exhibit full wrath, he doesn't unleash it all the time, thank God. I mean, that would be a tough way to be. But he exhibits it in the context of 
slow to anger. Now look at how he explains how powerful his judgment is. He, he lists all these different forces of nature that he overcomes. He says, toward the, the second part of verse 3, he says, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. You know, when it's windy and stormy, how do you fight against that? God says, I can use that. I can, I can overcome that. I can, I can make that part of my judgment if I want. And clouds are the dust of his feet. They're nothing to him. He's using poetic language of nature to show his power over the forces of nature. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. You see an ocean, whoosh, whoosh, and he can just go, be dry. It's an amazing picture. And he makes all the rivers run dry. Bastion and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. Isn't that amazing? You're like, I didn't know anything about those cities. Well, neither did I, honestly. I know a little bit about Lebanon. They had great cedars, but... According to my research, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon were known as very fertile lands with blossoming, lots of fertile lands, and great things would easily grow there. He says, even in fertile places where all these great things grow, I'm so powerful that if I say you're not going to blossom anything, you're not. Again, he's showing his power over the forces of nature. Why is he doing this? To show that he has power over the powerful force of Nineveh and the Assyrians. That's what he's doing. He's using his power over nature to show he has power over the enemies of Judah, Nineveh. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. These powerful structures that people climb sometimes to their death. God says, I can make them melt away like nothing. The earth trembles at his presence and the world and all who live in it. Then he summarizes in verse 6. Who can withstand his indignation? Implied question do you think you can Nineveh you think you can just keep playing with God this way you think you can get away with this and the answer is of course you can't who can endure his fierce anger implied answer no one can his wrath is poured out like fire the rocks are shattered before him it's an awe-inspiring picture that God brings judgment as revenge when people are continually guilty that's a the point a god brings judgment as revenge when people are continually guilty when god wants to bring revenge he does so no force can stop him not nature not an army nothing not nineveh none of it and he does so as revenge revenge for nineveh's evil ways and god is a god of judgment and a god of revenge i, I can tell you I, I feel weird saying that god's a god of revenge but he is. Because we have revenge is such a negative term. Like, like we say, well, you shouldn't get revenge. And you ever, you know, you, you want to get revenge of people? And should you, get, should, should you and I take revenge against other people? No. But we forget. Why should you take revenge? Because of the verse in Romans, I think, 12, which quotes the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I, the Lord, will repay. We forget we shouldn't take revenge, but God is utterly holy. We shouldn't take revenge because we leave room for God to take revenge on people. So when I say God is vengeful, it just sounds so unfair. Like, oh, I, I don't know, Vince, you're reading from the wrong Bible. No, he is. He's a God of revenge and a God of judgment. He brings judgment as revenge, but he only does so when people are continually guilty. He doesn't just look for one little mistake and go, ha, 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 there's an opportunity. 
my kids, when they would see little bugs, they would, they would, they would just go up to it. They'd see a bug, and they'd go, kill bug, and they would run up to it and just step on it. And, and some people think God's like that, kill bug. He doesn't want to kill bug. He doesn't want to kill anybody, but he can. And the reason, and this is the second point, point B in your notes, God brings judgment as payback for faithless opposition to his will. That's what Nineveh ultimately did. They were faithless, and they opposed God's will. Verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. You smell a setup? But, but, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. With an overwhelming flood. Now, commentators don't know if this literally happened because of where Nineveh was. There were two rivers, the Tigris and the, the Koser. These two rivers could have overflowed and undermine the walls of Nineveh, and it could have been an overwhelming literal flood. Or it could have been figurative language, and armies came in, uh, likely the, um, the Medes, the, um, the Scythians, and the third group, um, and the Babylonians, who were the next world empire. Those three armies eventually came in and were the agents of God to overcome Nineveh. So it could have been those three armies, or a literal flood, or maybe both. We don't know. But somehow God overtook them. And it was an overwhelming flood. He calls Nineveh his foes. You go, well, man, I, th I thought Nineveh was after Judah, but Judah is God's people. And when you're after God's people, you're after God. He says, if, if, so if Judah's my enemies, if Judah is your enemy, then I'm your enemy too, God says. And God will flood them with judgment to pay them back for their evil. Now, notice in your notes, notice how in the midst of all this judgment, how God is slow to reach his anger, verse 3, He's good, he's a refuge of help, and he's caring, verse 7. So it's important that you understand that God's judgment always works in perfect concert with his other attributes. You just cannot pick out one over the other. One of the things that kind of bothers me, I'll be honest with you, is how some people talk about God these days. You know, first of all, they say this. They say, well, my God... And, and I, I just, I, I want to stop him right there and I go, because compared to what? Like, my God? Or is there, is there a whole bunch of these different gods? So people begin to say, my God would never do, and then they fill in the blank with something unbiblical. I go, really? You know, my God would never be mad at me. My, and and, and you, know, you know what I find is that we tend to make God fit the mold we want him to be. And what we tend to do is, whatever we do, we tend to say, that's right. So that, whatever God is like to make my life be okay, that's the God I believe in. And we all do it. And then what happens is, when, when, when God's attributes would threaten something that we do, or some kind of way that we live, and it leaves us uncomfortable, well, my God, that's not God. And I'm just here to tell you that you cannot cherry-pick the traits of God that you like. There's so much balance involved. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, John chapter 1 tells us, and he's full of grace and truth. 
when you speak to somebody, Ephesians chapter 4, speak the truth. Lay it down, brother. Preach. Speak the truth in love. And what I find is when you get out of balance with the character of God, you're not talking fully about the God of the Bible. And it's really important that, you, that if you're a strong personality, that you don't just focus on the judgment of God and harsh preaching and all of this, and then forget the gentle side of God. And if you're a, a quieter, softer spoken person, it's important that you remember the, the, the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. But you cannot neglect the strong side of God. You see, all of us have a penchant to kind of slant or, or lean into some aspects of God character traits and what we see in this first part even though he's going to judge Nineveh he's saying look just because I'm a judge that's not the only thing I am does that make sense this is really important that's one of the things we're going to get out of Nahum but the second thing is that not only is judgment part of God's character judgment is part of God's commands this is how he made life work this is how he orders the world it's part of his commands it's what he says will happen when people disobey. He tells us, this is how the world works. If you do this, that's wrong, and I'm going to judge it at, at some point in time. So look at how he begins in verse 9. Verse 9, this is how God responds with judgment to those who fight against him. Thank you. Who fight against him. Look at verse 9. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Now what's that talking about? Who's they? whatever they plot against the Lord. Well, they are the Ninevites. And then it says later on, it says they will not, uh, he, will bring, uh, he will bring to an end this plot and trouble will not come a second time. History tells us that the Ninevites had previously tried to attack Judah. Judah's king, who I can't remember at the time, repented, turned to God, and God preserved Judah from the first attack. And God says, don't worry, it's not going to happen a second time. So they are the Ninevites. He's saying it's not going to happen. They're not going to attack you again. Verse 10, they will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. It's funny because in verse 10, the word for entangled and the word for drunk sound the same. It says they will be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. In other words, when they try to do the second attack, they're going to stumble over each other. It's not going to work. It's going to be an uncoordinated attack that will fail. It'll just fall over on itself. They will be consumed like dry stubble. Verse 11. For you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels against the wicked. Uh, counsels wickedness. And this is some Assyrian king who's going to be involved in this unsuccessful second plot to take over Judah. Again, the southern tribes of Israel. They will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. And so what God is saying, and this is important, even though Assyria was judging Judah, God was judging Judah through Assyria or through Nineveh. You see that? I will judge you no more. Well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought it was Nineveh. Yeah, but Nineveh was God's instrument for judgment on Judah. Just like Nineveh is going to come against Judah, but God says they're really coming against me. Nations and kings and powers are just instruments of how God deals with people. And so the idea here is that 
uh, I will not afflict you anymore because Nineveh will be done. Verse 13, now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The yoke has the idea of of perhaps a yoke that an animal wore and it was forced into labor and shackles bind you, keep you from being free. He says you're going to be free from the dominion, the power, the damage of the Assyrians. Verse 14, the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. God says, I will totally destroy you, Nineveh. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. You go, well, that makes sense. God, God would whack the other gods. Well, it's interesting. Whenever God spells out judgment, if you understand the context for it, it, it makes even more sense. So you go, oh, yeah, that's cool, sure. False gods in your temple, I'm going to destroy them. Why would he say that to Nineveh? Because one of Nineveh's things was they would go into a conquered nation's temple and destroy it and take out the objects in it and use it for gold or, or whatever natural resources they could plunder out of it. God says, that's the way you treated nations. Watch this. When I judge you, that's how I'm going to treat you. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. What strong words. I'll prepare your grave for you are vile. This verse was literally fulfilled in 612 when again, the Babylonians which were going to be the next world empire after the Assyrians. The Medes, which eventually would be the next world power after the Babylonians fell. And then a small contributing group called the Scythians. We don't know a ton about them. These three groups literally were God's instrument to attack Nineveh 612 BC. And history tells us when they attacked the city and destroyed it, they wiped it out and they literally dug graves to bury the people in. So this is not just poetic talk this literally happened i'll prepare your grave for you are vile how would you like god to say that about you those are pretty bad people now he goes from that and he switches his focus from nineveh judgment to judah the ones being protected from nineveh's attack comfort because that's what nahum's mean nahum's name means comfort look there on the there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. And this is a, actually quoted, I believe, in um, Romans, Romans chapter 10, uh, part of it. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. He's saying, look, I, I'm going to bring judgment on Nineveh, and it's going to be all over. I'll protect you, Judah. Everything will be fine. It'll be fine. It's interesting, when it says, no more will the wicked invade you, it's a fascinating Hebrew word. It's one of the few Hebrew words that we anglicize. The Hebrew word for wicked is belial, belial. We get the word belial. He says, no more will the beliled people invade you. They'll be completely destroyed. When Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC, it was never rebuilt, never rebuilt. According to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, so complete was the destruction of Nineveh that when um, Xenophon passed by the site 200 years later, he thought the mounds were the ruins of some other city, not Nineveh. And then later on, Alexander the Great, that great general who died at a very young age of, of sexual diseases, so it's said, 
fighting in a battle nearby, didn't even realize he was near the ruins of Nineveh. That's how destroyed and leveled Nineveh was. And so God brings not only judgment as revenge when people are continually guilty. I'm sorry, nope, I, I jumped ahead. God responds with judgment to those who fight against him. And then God responds with judgment to protect victims from further harm. He says, Israel, no more harm is going to come your way. But again, amidst all this judgment, notice in your notes, notice how God not only brings righteous judgment on Nineveh, but righteous protection for Judah. So you have to understand both sides of it. Judgment and comfort. Execution of judgment for one, protection from further harm for another. It's really important to understand it. Now in chapter 1, we saw who God is. We saw his qualifications for judgment. And then next time we get together, if you can handle more judgment, and I encourage you to, not, not judgment, you know what I mean, learning more about judgment, then um, you'll see how he executes judgment on Nahum. Let me wrap up with a couple of applications, and then if you have questions, we'll, we'll have some time for questions. But how do we understand God as a judge in everyday life? I mean, how do we understand it? These are two important points. I've alluded to them throughout the message, but let me just give them to you. Number one. Our view of God's character must always be complete to be accurate. Our view of God's character must always be complete to be accurate. I'm talking to somebody today about this message, and, and it's really, really sad that people think the study of the attributes of God or the character traits of God is boring. You know, that God is loving, gracious, faithful, merciful, just, judge, judgmental, vengeful. And we, we take it as like an academic study. But this is really who God is. And thank God for every one of it. You, you just can't pick the ones you like. To fully understand God, you have to understand everything and the tension each one presents. All of these character traits are vital to understand God. You have to understand him fully. Now here's the challenge. We'll never understand God fully. I can invent some categories like God is this, you know, and scholars say here's his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are attributes that you and I can share at some level. God is loving. Well, you can be loving, so that's communicable. He can communicate. They, they are expressions that we can mimic. And then he has incommunicable He's sovereign. Well, you're not sovereign. He's, judge, he's the judge. You're not the judge. And we can have these categories, but you can't fully understand God, even with categories. But you have to try to understand. That's why Paul says, I want to know Christ. I thought you already knew him. Because we use know as a euphemism for becoming a Christian, and it's true. But you have to keep knowing God. Every day, getting in God's word. Every day, praying every day seeing god in life every day understanding i i can't see an event with just one lens i got to see the whole character prism of god when i see that event properly and then finally here's the second thing particularly about judgment we, we say oh my goodness god's a judge how do i tell my friend god's a judge well it's true but if god was never a judge he could never truly manifest his other character traits. Let me say this as I wrap up. If God were not a judge, how could God be righteous? Okay. 
I, I don't think anybody has a problem saying God is righteous. Anybody have a problem with that? But how could God be righteous if he never judges? He couldn't be. Could you imagine going to a judge and saying, uh, not guilty. OJ, not guilty. Osama bin Laden, not that he ever went to trial, not guilty. Not guilty. Not... After a while, you'd go, you're not righteous. Why not? Because you don't ever judge. If you don't judge, you can't be righteous. If you don't judge, you can't be loving. If you don't judge, you can't be gracious. If you don't judge, you can't be angry. There's nothing that can flow out of God accurately unless you understand him as judge. By the way, that's true for love. God can't be loving unless he's angry. God can't be loving unless he's just. Every attribute can only be understood when every other attribute is in place. See, otherwise you can't fully manifest. Does that make sense? I know that's kind of heavy, and I know I'm probably getting a little deep. Say it another way. How can you be loving if you never punish evil? How can you be angry if you never have patience? If you never have patience and you're always angry, then, 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 then you're not exhibiting angry. You are, you are angry. I know we have people in our lives that are just perpetually angry, but that, that's not God. And so it's really important to understand that if God was never a judge, he couldn't manifest his other character traits. So when people say, oh my God, I, I can't believe God would judge people. I always tell them, well, how would you feel if somebody came in your house and murdered your whole family and they were all dead and they did it with um, malice and no regard for life and then the judge said, not guilty. How would you feel? I'd be ticked. You want a God like that? No. I just don't want him to judge me. I know, nobody wants him to judge anybody, but he does. So let's just bow our heads and pray and then if you have any questions about judgment or about character of God or about Nahum or anything I'd be glad to answer them for a few minutes Lord I know this is a heavy subject and um, I pray God that we would see it for its beauty you preserved it in the Bible there's a reason for it maybe we haven't read Nahum maybe this this heavy sledding maybe it's a tough topic maybe all these facts are heavy but I pray God that we would help we'd have a better understanding that sometimes you have to become a judge. We make you. Our sin makes you become a judge. And I pray, God, that we would never put ourselves in the position of Nineveh to be so callous and evil toward other people and that you'd have to write a diatribe of judgment against us. But I also thank you, God, that when you do judgment, you do judgment to bring comfort to the righteous. And I thank you that you brought comfort to Judah from her enemies. And I thank you that when you execute judgment on enemies, you bring comfort to the righteous. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you need to head out, we totally understand that. If there's three of you left after, that would be awesome. But if you have questions on judgment or God, or Nahum, or anything, um, ask away. If you have to take off, have a good night. Yes.
John. Okay, Pastor Frank's going to hand you a mic, John. No. Um, well, he may have, but there's no evidence that he did. So he may have. What, what God did was God inspired Nahum to write down these words and record them in the book of Nahum. To the degree to which he shared them, obviously if he's going to make reference to Judah, um, these, are, these could have been words that were shared to them and maybe also written down. These could have been words that were shared to Nineveh, but we don't know that. We just know that he inspired Nahum to have this oracle, this burden, this vision, and then as a result, he expressed it in the writing of Nahum. But how that writing was distributed, how that message was distributed, we're not left to, uh, we're, not, we're not told exactly. It's a very, I've never thought about that way. It's a very good question. So, um, but clearly, if he's going to say all this stuff about, hey, Judah, you're going to be comforted, somehow it at least came across to Judah. And you get the idea that if he speaks of Nineveh and this is going to happen to you, maybe the message got across to them. Maybe it was a copy of his vision was given to them. Maybe it was communicated. We just don't know. It's a very good question, very thoughtful question, John. Uh, but, and it kind of stumped me a little bit. I, I just don't know. I just know that... At the very least, we know that God inspired him to write it down, and it was, you know, for the record. And, of course, it was written before the judgment. And um, one of the great ways you can, you know, people say, how do I trust the Bible? Look at all these stunning predictions. I think I read, I was going to copy it for you, but then I figured I'm overwhelming you with all these weird names and dates, and I didn't want to overwhelm But if you're interested, I could do it next time. There's actually 12 prophecies that are fulfilled. I just gave you one where, you know, I'm going to dig your graves for your vile sins. And 612, the Scythians, Medes, and Babylonians literally dug graves for them. So one of the great, how do you know the Bible's true? The answer is real simple, fulfilled prophecy. It's one of the great ways to prove the Bible. So, but that's a great question. I have a sense that somehow it was communicated. We just don't know exactly how. It's a good question. I like that question. Very thoughtful, John. Any other questions on... Nahum, judgment. Does it make sense what you, what you understand about God? Do you understand how judgment, you, you can't single out any one attribute. You have to get a full picture of that. It's very important. Okay, yes, Diane. Uh, Pastor Frank's going to get you the mic here. Would you agree that the uh, Old Testament shows you more of the wrathful, negative side, what we would view as negative side of God, and that the New Testament, when we meet Jesus, we see more of the mercy and the love and the forgiveness side of him, the other side of his traits, and the two balance each other? You know, I, I've heard this question asked of pastors many times before, and they would say, no, but I, I, I would say... Somewhat, yes. But with this caveat, I would say yes. Do you see more of the judgment of God in the Old Testament than in the New? Yes. 
until you read Revelation. <laughs> that's, that's a bunch of judgment now. So let me just say this. I, I would say you're probably right as long as you understand this. And I know you do, thanks. I know how much you know about the Bible. Is that you see a lot of the judgment of God in the Old Testament, but you see a lot of his grace. I mean, we saw it in Jonah, the grace to forgive the Ninevites. You see it in, in many other places where you see, you see demonstrations of grace in the Old Testament. But uh, understand that, yeah, there's a lot of judgment and war and bloodshed. You know. Then in the New Testament, you know, Jesus full of grace, but Jesus had moments of judgment. You know, he flipped over tables, you know, not once but twice, beginning and end of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. You see the book of Revelation. You see the, the teaching letters of the epistles where Paul talks about how to church discipline people in the church. It's pretty strong language. Uh, you know, if someone acts sinfully, have nothing to do with them. So you see it in both. But I would say my gut is, yeah, you see a little more judgment in the old, but I still think you see grace. And I think you see a lot of grace in the new, but I still think you see judgment. Because when you're talking to a person who's not a Christian yet, yes, it's better to guide them toward the book of John and yeah, the yeah, New agreed. Testament. <laughs> because if they start with the with the Old Testament, yes. they have a view of God that's not appealing exactly. to a non-Christian. Yes, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, notwithstanding that God's sovereign and God chooses people and the mystery of election and free will and all that. Absolutely, yeah. I would not say, I think the first book you ought to read is Nahum. That'll rock your world. You know, I think it could be trouble. Yeah, I always, I, I always start with Jesus. And so whether you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I don't know that it really matters. I think we have John because John's stated purpose, John 20, 31. Uh, these, um, not, that's first John. John 23, um, um, I write these things so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. I think that's John 20, 31. I'm trying to call it top of my head. So the whole book is structured so that you'll believe. And it's all these believe miracles. So I always believe that. I believe you start with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the, is, first of all, he's God. He's the purest revelation of God. I think we, either last time or the time before, I talked about the progress of revelation. How God increasingly reveals more of himself. I think Hebrews chapter 1 says, you know, God's spoken to us finally. His final word spoken to us is Jesus Christ. So he's the perfect, clearest revelation of God. And then you can work back and understand the other attributes of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's why Jesus came, to, to, to manifest and demonstrate the Father. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, when I first become a Christian, even when you first become a Christian, I remember somebody my mom said, now my son's one of these born-again Christians. And, and she worked at Kodak, and this guy goes, well, I am too. He goes, give him this note. So he gave him this note, and he talked about how, you know, people who are bad should get capital punishment. And I go, that doesn't sound like Christianity. Well, then I began to understand the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, and I go, yeah, it is part of Christianity. So you want to get the basics down first. I agree. I mean, whenever you have anybody. Now, you want to hear some, a real funny story? This came to mind. I had a friend who said, uh, you know, I was helping this person um, become a Christian, and he had all these questions. I go, look, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to read the Gospel of John, and then let's talk about it. They, they meet a few weeks later. He goes, you know, I, I read the Gospel of John, and then 
I understood some of it. He goes, then I, I kept reading, and then I read the next book, Acts. And he goes, then I found this great book called Romans. And I read Romans, and I accepted Christ. So it's like John, then Acts, the story of the church, and then Romans is the great letter of justification by faith. And so it's a great story. So yeah, you always start with Jesus, and, um, and I think people aren't captivated by that. It's pretty, pretty hard to know what would captivate them. Great question. One more question, and we'll let you go and watch the bills get creamed. Yes. Did somebody say something? I know, I know, I know. We have one more Bills guy to endure, I mean, to celebrate together. Yeah. All right, going once. Going twice. Thank you for being here tonight, and we hope to see you in a few weeks. Thanks. from now we're having excuse me two weeks from now we're having our baptism because it's the fifth thursday the 29th so it'll actually be i believe three weeks all the details are in the in the planner so thank you